A church that does not value their collective identity in Christ will always struggle to have true unity in the body of Christ. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So here in verse 27, Paul begins by saying, whether I come and see you or whether I hear about you, so there's this issue that Paul has heard about, this conflict between Yodi and Syntyche, and then he says that I will find you standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's three pillars there. There's three elements that Paul is going to speak to us about unity of church, unity of believers, the unity in the fellowship. And the first of all, he says uh, that I will find you standing firm. That's a military word. It would have been used in Paul's day to describe a soldier standing at his post that would not leave his post regardless of the danger that he might be facing. Standing firm. So standing firm implies here that there's something to stand firm against. There's some type of opposition that's going to be coming at these Philippians in terms of opposing their church unity, the unity of the believers there in Philippi, that they're standing firm against that. We don't stand firm unless there's something that we're standing firm against. So he says standing firm, and then comes the threefold description of church unity or the three foundational elements of church unity. First of all, in one spirit. So in that phrase, one spirit, we have a decision to make. And that decision is whether or not we think that the spirit, the word spirit, should be capitalized. If it's not capitalized, as it is in most translations, then what that's saying to us is Paul's saying that there's this unity of attitude, that there's a unity of human spirit together, you know, a spirit of oneness which makes sense, that fits the context well, and that is a perfectly valid translation. That may be what Paul is saying, that he's speaking here of this oneness of our spirits, oneness of spirit. That would be a helpful teaching that Paul is giving the Philippians here, but I don't think that Paul is saying that. In fact, I think that it's better understood to think of the word spirit as capitalized. Or in other words, what Paul is referring here is to the Holy Spirit in one spirit, i.e., the Holy Spirit. For reasons I won't get into, I think that that fits Paul's flow of thought better. So I think that what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the unity of the believers there at Philippi is based and grounded upon the shared partaking in the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like something he talked about a great deal in chapter 1, that we all share, that we all koinonia in that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and by partaking in the Spirit, by being one in the Spirit, or in other words, having received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ 
and received the Spirit of God in us, we now have this identity, and this identity is in Jesus Christ. So there's a oneness of identity, which I think is the, the basic, most elemental foundation for the unity of believers, for a unity of a church, is unity of identity. Paul is saying that these Philippian believers, they have all partaken of the same miracle of salvation that he has. They've all taken partaken of the same uh, redemption and regeneration and conversion as one another. And so therefore, they now share this identity in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God lives in all of them as well. And so they have a shared identity with one another. And that is, again, the most elemental requirement for church unity. There is no church unity without unity of identity. In other words, there is no true, genuine church unity among a church or a group of of people of whom some are regenerate believers and others are not. Now, we know in practical terms that that would describe virtually every church. But when we speak of a group of people that are a mixture of born-again, converted, regenerate followers of Jesus Christ and others who are not born-again, regenerate followers of Jesus Christ, then unity there cannot truly happen in the biblical sense. So, we know, of course, that none of us can judge another person's heart. We can't see into someone's heart. We don't know the true condition of someone's relationship with Jesus Christ, but we can see one another's fruits. And we can see what one another, what we each value in our life. And we can tell that when there are those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and the fruits of their life are maybe not as consistent as we'd all like them to be, but we can see that this person loves Jesus Christ and values the church and values the coming together of believers, not perfectly, but but we see those fruits in their life, then we can have some some degree of assurance that this person is a born-again, converted follower of Jesus Christ. And if we are, then we know that there is a shared identity there. But we also know that it is very, very commonplace for churches to have many people who would profess life in Jesus Christ and yet have fruits in their life that don't equal that profession, that don't validate a profession of faith. Or they may have a life that shows that they don't value the church and they don't value the assembling together of believers. And they don't value the obedience to command such as Hebrews 10 verse 25 that tells us not to forsake the gathering together or the assembling of the saints. So basically to cut to the chase, we all know that there are a great many, probably the majority of, of evangelical churches that would have those among them that would claim to be members of that body that are twice a year's, Christmas and Easter's. And when we have that conglomeration, then we will always have a church that struggles for unity. Now, the church of Jesus Christ, as we come together, those who are not converted, born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ are always most welcome among us. But there's a difference between being among us and being one of us and being that publicly declared member of a body of Jesus Christ. 
And so what I'm speaking to here is the importance of membership in a body of believers in which that, that church as diligently and as fastidiously as they can, they, they attempt and they seek to make sure that those who are identified as members of the body of Christ are as best as we can, brothers and sisters, tell, truly born again. And we have that unity of identity. A church that does not value their collective identity in Christ will always struggle to have true unity in the body of Christ. So that's, I think that's the first thing that Paul's addressing here. He's speaking to their unified identity in Christ. You are all sharers of one spirit. Then he also says, not only one spirit, but with one mind. Now he says one mind here, what I think that he's getting at is one doctrine or one belief. Your beliefs are the same. You have a unity of belief. There are not those among you who have unorthodox beliefs or errant beliefs or heretical beliefs. You share in one belief. Now, that is the second elemental requirement of unity among a body of believers is unity of belief. But we all know that aren't, don't we, that there are just a laundry list of things that Christians disagree on. If there's any group of people that know that there's things that Christians can disagree on, it should be this group, right? So there's, there is a list of things that, that Christians can disagree on. But when Paul is saying you're of one mind, he's not saying that we all see completely eye to eye on every facet of the Christian life or every facet of the interpretation of Scripture. What he's saying is that there is a unity of belief in the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of the faith. What he's going to say to the Corinthians in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15 and verse 3 and 4, he calls them the, 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 those things of first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, the gospel, the fundamentals of the gospel. Those things that we cannot take away without damaging the gospel the elemental beliefs of the faith. You probably have heard of the Apostles' Creed. Most of us have heard of that. Some of us probably have memorized it. We don't typically recite it oftentimes in our typical uh, church settings. But here it is. It's, it's a good way that to summarize the basics of our belief, the fundamental belief of the Christian faith. Nothing in the Apostles' Creed can be lost without losing the gospel. So it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And you notice, of course, the the Lowercase c there, that's not the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic here just means universal. I believe in the Holy Universal or the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. None of those things can be taken out without losing the gospel. So here we have, of course, we have the creation of the the Father, how God created all things. Jesus is His only Son, and Jesus is equal with God. He is our Lord. 
We see the virgin birth there. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We see his life, how he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was sacrificed. He was he crucified. He was crucified. He didn't just faint. He died. And he was buried. And at that time, he took on the punishment of our sin. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. There's resurrection. He ascended into heaven. There's the ascension. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. There's the return of Jesus Christ for judgment. Here's the Holy Spirit. So now we have the full Trinity, the Holy Catholic Church. There we see the doctrine of the church, communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body. There is the, the doctrine of the resurrection and life everlasting, eternal life. There's, those are all the elements of the faith that we cannot lose any of those. And so what Paul is saying is here is that you are of one mind. You are not trying to merge together beliefs that are going to be contradictory. We have the freedom in Jesus Christ to understand secondary matters in Scripture differently. But the fundamentals of our faith must be unified in order for there to be unity in the body. So that's the second thing he says. Now the third thing he says has to do with our purpose. So we've seen our identity, we've seen our uh faith, our beliefs, and now we see our purpose. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this word striving is an athletic term. In fact, it's the the very word that we get the word, our word athletics or athlete from. And it has with it this idea of, of contending with another, of straining and struggling against another. Think of two people wrestling. And so striving together, you see the togetherness. It's not just striving, it's but it's a striving together. Now, in our English translation, that could be confused to be striving against one another. We could say it the same way, but in the original, that Paul, as Paul writes it, there's no confusion. He's, he's not saying that you're striving against one another. You're striving together against something else. And the purpose, the goal for the striving, he says, is the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is this striving? I think it's easy to picture here the Philippian believers, Paul's writing to the Philippian believers and he has in mind that they're striving and straining against these external, pagan, secular forces that are against the work of the church. But I don't think that that's really where Paul is going with that. I don't think that what he has in mind is this striving or straining against something outside the church. I think what he's really getting at is a striving together that is more than anything else inside the body of the church. So let's think of it this way. Let's think of what is the purpose of a church? What does the Scripture tell us is the purpose of a church? It's rather important, I would say, that we all are really clear on what is the purpose for us to be here. What is the purpose? What's the point? Scripture teaches us that the purpose of the church is one unified purpose, and that purpose is to make disciples. This is what Jesus says in that passage that we, that we know of as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you, And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is what we know of as the Great Commission. And the command in that passage is make disciples. Jesus commands us 
to be about the business of making disciples. And that's not just one of the commands that Jesus gives us. That is the final thing that He says before His feet leave the ground and He goes back to the Father to leave the work of the church up to the Spirit. And the command is to make disciples. Now, sometimes we might say, well, well, I thought the purpose of the church was to worship Jesus. Yes, that's part of making disciples. Or I thought the church was to, the purpose of the church was to evangelize the lost. Yes, that's part of making disciples. Or I thought the church was to serve the community in which it lives and meet the needs of the poor. Yes, that's part of making disciples. The overarching command, the overarching encompassing purpose is to make disciples. We make disciples by preaching the gospel to those who are not believers so that they may believe and become disciples and then we make disciples out of them. We can't make disciples out of non-believers. But we preach the gospel so that in, in hopes that they believe and become followers of Jesus Christ and then the whole purpose of the church is to make disciples. Make disciples of ourself and make disciples of one another. So how is it that we go about this work of making disciples, or to be clear, God is the one who makes disciples. But how is it that we partner together with God in His work of making disciples of ourselves and our brothers and sisters? How is it that that disciple-making takes place? Part of it happens as we obey the call to proclaim the gospel to those outside of the church, to the lost. And... Part of it occurs as we follow the commands of Scripture to live a life that does honor to the gospel while unbelievers watch. That is part of it. But those two are, those two things are relatively minor in the grand scope of what it is that we do to make disciples of ourselves and one another. The great majority of the whole process of making disciples occurs right here within the body of Christ. In the Scriptures, we have, in the New Testament, we have these things called one another commands. You probably have heard of these. One another commands. There's a ton of them. And they're on the flip side of your notes there. If you want to flip over and just kind of take a peek at what we're, what we're driving towards here. These one another commands are found all over the place in the New Testament. In fact, 100 times they are found in our New Testaments. And all of that comprises no less than 59 distinct individual commands. We won't go through all of them, but, but they're all familiar to us. Commands like forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32. Or pray for one another, James 5.16. Or uh, do honor to one another. Romans 12.10, or love one another. 16 times we're told to love one another like we are in John 13.34. So all over the place, there's these commands for how we are to live and treat one another. And don't be mistaken, the one another is other brothers and sisters within the church. Now these commands, they cover about a third of them, or not, well, actually exactly one third of them, speak to how it is that we are to love one another, ways in which we love one another. Another third of them refer to how it is that we are to get along with one another. And then the remaining ones, the bulk of those have to do with how we live humbly with one another 
And then they cover various other things. Now, all those things encompass some 59 commands in Scripture. Now, in addition to that, there's a whole plethora of other commands that are basically saying the same thing. They just don't use that phrase, or it's actually one word in the Greek. They just don't use that word, one another. Things like, meet the earthly physical needs of one another. James 2, 15, uh, 14 through 16. Acts, uh, Acts 2, 41 through 46, right? We don't see that specific word, one another, but it's the same thing. Those are all over the place. In fact, if we were to look at our New Testaments and we were to go through and count up all the commands, we would come up with 1,050 commands. Of those 1,050 commands, more than 1,000 of them have to do with how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. And so a tiny minority of the time, the New Testament is telling us about how it is that we interact with the unbelieving world, such as Matthew 5, verse 16, So let your light shine before men that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? That's telling us how we live before unbelievers. Or Peter, Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2 says basically the same thing. Or um, 1 Peter 3, verse 5, Always be ready with a defense for the hope that lies within you. Those are telling us how we relate to unbelievers, but they are a tiny minority of what the New Testament has to say to us. The majority of what the New Testament has to say to us is telling us how it is that we live together. How it is that we love one another. How it is that we forgive one another. How it is that we instruct one another. How it is that we correct one another. How it is that we encourage one another. How it is that we build one another up. How it is that we meet one another's needs. And on and on and on it goes. In other words, that is how we make disciples of ourself and of one another. Those are all the guidelines for how it is that we go about the process of becoming mature in our faith while also helping others to become mature in their faith. So let's think think this through for just a moment. Let's say we take the, the command, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. So a brother or sister in the body offends you. They slander you. They say something false about you that is not flattering. And they have sinned against you. And you, in your angerness, you just want to go into that place of bitterness that we all like, because let's admit it, bitterness feels good. Doesn't it feel good to hold on to bitterness and just wallow in it? So we want to stay there. We want to wallow in our bitterness. And then along comes the Word of God that says, "Uh uh-uh. Forgive one another. And not only do that, but go to them and be reconciled to them, as Paul's going to say to the Corinthian believers. And so there we are saying, well, I just wanted to sort of wallow in my sin of bitterness, but then the Word of God comes along and tells me I cannot do it, that I must forgive them and I must go to them and be reconciled. In other words, I must fill the jar. Remember last week? evacuate the old sin, get that out, and I must go to them and be made more like Jesus Christ. In the process, so are they. Or take, for example, the command in Romans 15, verse 14, to instruct one another or exhort one another. Okay, so we're all familiar with this type of situation. A brother or sister in the body comes to your attention that they are, they haven't stumbled upon a sin 
but they are repeating a sin. They are living in a sin, and they're comfortable living in a sin. And you know about this. What do we want to do? They ignore it. That's the easiest, that's the most comfortable thing to do. Just pretend we don't know about it. Just let the Holy Spirit deal with them. I'll pray for them, you know. But we just, we don't want to confront. Because that is uncomfortable. Along comes the Word of God that says, uh-uh. Exhort one another. As Paul is going to say, you have the Holy Spirit in you that is equipping you to go to that brother or sister in love, not in judgment, but in love, and exhort them and instruct them to leave behind that sin. You are in the process being sanctified, being made a disciple, being matured in your faith, and in the same process, so are they. So you, you follow the pattern? All of those one another commands are how disciples are made. Disciples are made within the context largely of the church. If you are married to a believing spouse, then you can look at your believing spouse and you can see the face of the person who is most responsible for your disciple-making. Outside of that, look around the room and those are the faces for whom are most responsible for your discipleship, for your maturity in Christ, for your growth in Christ. All of that is intended to take place in the context of the church and it only can take place in the context of the church. You cannot be made a disciple outside the context of fellow believers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.